chapter 7 at some point. Chapter 7 is an incredible chapter. It's a sermon from Stephen. It's a great example of a first century sermon, and it's a sermon that points uh, to Jesus. And so I'll talk about some of those things, but probably won't read them all. But um, before we get started, let's pray, and then we'll move on from there. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be together this morning. God, thank you for allowing us to gather in this place and to already spend some time uh, worshiping, being reminded of your great work on our behalf. Um, God, thank you for Jesus and for what he's done for us. And God, now as we look at your word and we look at Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7 and what you were doing in the early church, God, I pray that you would speak, speak to our hearts and minds that we would hear from you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work. I pray that you would use me as an instrument of grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel. God, I recognize that my words are of little importance, but God, your words are of utmost importance. And so I pray that we would hear from you, that we would be changed because we met with Jesus in this place. And God, I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Um, if I'm honest with you guys, uh, preaching is really, really hard work sometimes. It, it weighs heavily to prepare and to deal with God's word. And, um, and, I, and I fully recognize my inadequacies as well um, and that I will never be an orator or a preacher like Andy Stanley or Tim Keller or somebody else that you may admire. And so the whole preparation process of preaching is really defined by a lot of anxiety. Um, that's sort of offset sometimes. Uh, whenever you're able to deal with God's word in preparation and suddenly it comes alive to you in a way that it never has before. And so if I'm honest about chapter 6 and chapter 7 as well, this week it sort of tackled me. Uh, it sort of uh, smacked me in the face in a way that maybe I haven't experienced before when I'm dealing with this chapter and with this topic in chapter 6 and 7. And uh, some weeks, like I said, God's word just comes alive when you're preparing. It kind of tackles you. This past Monday, I was at home and uh, getting ready to go uh, to a concert. Somebody had given me a ticket. And um, I've shared with you guys before how um, Amy and I, it's kind of weird, kind of funny, but Amy and I, Amy's, Amy's, Amy's my wife, and Amy's really, really strong. And so sometimes at our house, we have competitions to see who the strongest person is. This is true. We have arm wrestling contests. We have burpee contests. Uh, we really know how to keep the romance alive. Um, but on Monday, I was getting ready to go to this concert, and uh, I was standing by the bed, and then all of a sudden, um, I was laying on my back on the bed, and, uh, and, and I realized that what had happened was Amy had picked me up and tackled me onto the bed, sort of like a linebacker in the Super Bowl. And all I could do was laugh. Uh, because I had realized what had happened, and uh, Amy had proven her dominance in that moment, right? Um, but when I hit the bed, uh, she, she started laughing, and uh, she said, you should have seen the surprised look on your face. And I'm like, well, of course I should have seen the surprise. You just tackled me onto the bed. But that's sort of what this passage did to me this week. There's something that's been right in front of my face for so long, and it just sort of jumped out at me, and I couldn't believe that I had missed some of these things. But as we look at chapter 6 and we look at chapter 7, uh, in chapter 6, I sort of want us to see the implications of how uh, 
belonging to Christ informs the way we deal with disunity and neglectfulness. And in chapter 7, we'll briefly look at some of the implications of how belonging to Christ informs the way we understand our relationship to God and the way we understand our relationship to others. But if you will, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, uh, I'll read them. They'll be on the screen as well. If you want to flip there in your Bibles, please feel free to do that. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Up until this point in the book of Acts, like I said, we've seen the Holy Spirit sort of empower the gospel proclamation of the early church and the early apostles and the early disciples, but it's been mainly centered in Jerusalem. But we still see that new disciples were being added on a regular basis. That's what verse 1 says. Disciples were increasing in number and primarily in Jerusalem, right? And, and primarily up to this point in the book of Acts, the focus has sort of been on the apostles, the 12 disciples in the early church. In chapter 6, we're introduced to two guys, Stephen and Philip. Um, as we move forward in the book of Acts, chapter 7 is primarily about Stephen. Chapter 8 is primarily uh, about Philip. And then when you move over to chapter 9, we're introduced to Paul who comes in at the end of chapter 7 as well, and some of the things that are happening there. So you start to see this shift away from the disciples and the apostles, and it starts right here in chapter 6, as these new uh, leaders are appointed for a particular task. Like I said, the work has primarily been, uh, or, or the book of Acts has primarily been about the apostles up to this point. Um, and in this uh, chapter 1, I mean in verse 1 of chapter 6, uh, we see these two sort of groups of people identified, Hebrews and Hellenists. Um, the apostles were probably part of that group that would be considered Hebrews. That means their heart language was probably Aramaic, and they probably grew up in Israel within a very Jewish context. The other group of people that Luke introduces us here to or names here is the group called Hellenists. And uh, most people think that what that meant was people who were primarily Greek-speaking, even though they were Jewish, and probably grew up not in Israel, but as a part of the Jewish diaspora, meaning they probably came from some area outside of Israel in a primarily Greek or Roman cultural context. And so you have these two groups of people together in the early church in Jerusalem. And if you remember from the last couple of weeks, the early church was taking care of one another. The early church was selling things and sacrificially giving of their own money and their own possessions in order to take care of one another. And if you remember back as well, it says they were laying it at the feet of the apostles and the apostles were distributing it as any had need. 
But then in verse 1, all of a sudden we're introduced to perhaps uh, what could turn into the first instance of disunity in the early church. It says that the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of things, or in the distribution of the things that were given to take care of one another. And I would hesitate to say that the apostles were purposefully neglecting some for the sake of others. Maybe it had something to do with the difference in language and the difference in culture. Um, If the Hellenists were not originally from Israel, maybe they had a smaller support system. I I don't know. Perhaps the apostles were just focused on other things and um, being neglectful. Maybe they were being neglectful on purpose. I, I hope not. I don't think so. We don't really know why this was occurring, but we do know that it was occurring. And so the disciples wanted to stay focused on prayer and the proclamation of the gospel. So they develop a plan, and they come to the early church, to the early disciples, and say, this is our plan. We want you to find seven men who are reputable, who are full of the Holy Spirit, and who are wise. Those are the qualifications they lay out. And they can be devoted to this ministry. They can be devoted to this duty, this duty that's just as important as any other duty or ministry, but they'll be primarily devoted to that so that we can be devoted to something else. And so seven people are identified, and the disciples commission them, and the disciples lay, or the early apostles lay hands on them, and they're appointed to this task. Here's what's so interesting to me about this passage. Here's what sort of smacked me in the face this week and tackled me as I was looking at this passage, is that the apostles were primarily, primarily Hebrews. They grew up in Israel probably from a very uh, Israel-centric context and culture that they're a part of. All seven of the people who were appointed to the task of making sure that the goods that were given to the church were distributed correctly and in the right way, all seven of them were Hellenists. All seven names used here are Greek names. And we can find from other places in Scripture that some of them we know are, are, are from a very Roman or Greek context. And so it's likely that all seven of these guys that are appointed to handle this first instance of disunity were from the very group of people whose widows were being neglected in the distribution of goods. The very group that was being neglected, the very people that were on the outside, they were given positions of authority on the inside. Now, stay with me on this. We, the church, Redemption Church, the modern church in America, needs to learn from how the apostles handled this situation. Ultimately, where they could have caused disunity and ultimately where there was neglect of people inside the church. Right? First off, we need to see that the apostles handled this uh, quickly. They did not let it Settle. They didn't let it sit. Had they ignored this problem, had they blamed the people pointing out the neglect and the injustice, had they not acted immediately, imagine the damage that have, could have been done to the gospel witness. Imagine how their actions would have spoken louder than their words had they blamed the people who were experiencing neglect rather than appointing some of their own to be in positions 
of authority. There's a lesson that the modern church needs to learn. Their gospel proclamation would have been meaningless were they not being changed by the gospel even as they proclaimed it. Their ability to witness would have been severely damaged by the fact that they were unwilling to listen to and apply how the very gospel that they were proclaiming changes the way we deal with instances of disunity and neglect. Right? The church is meant to be a collection of different cultures and different groups of people who are all committed to the mission that Jesus has given us and united around Christ. And so when they experienced this first instance of neglect or first instance of disunity in the early church, the apostles didn't send the Hellenists away and say, go start your own church. Go over there and deal with your own thing all by yourself. Instead, they say, we're going to appoint these people that you've identified to positions of authority. They recognized the need for unity. They recognized the need to act. The apostles addressed the issue by putting members of the very people who were being neglected into positions of authority. It's astounding that I've missed this every time I've looked at chapter 6 in my life. But they actually increased unity by choosing reputable and spirit-filled people to take care of the whole fellowship of believers who were a part of the group that was being neglected. And Scripture says it pleased them all. And I want you to think of the modern-day implications of what the disciples did here. Think of the modern-day application and the modern-day implications of what they did. Let's reason together for a minute. The apostles weren't offended that the neglected group raised concerns. Instead, they listened to what was being said. They learned from them. They essentially led by listening. Some people are really terrible at listening because they just want their turn to talk, right? You, you probably know people like this. I'm really terrible at listening because I don't have the capacity to stay engaged and to be empathetic for a long period of time. I'm the absolute worst at listening. Uh, I can have a conversation with you, and five minutes later, I'm going to be wondering what we talked about. And that's really kind of a problem. But the early apostles here led by listening. Listen uh, to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about listening. He who can no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God either. He will be doing nothing but prattle in the presence of God too. This is the beginning of the death of the spiritual life. Anyone who thinks that his time is too valuable to spend keeping quiet will eventually have no time for God and his brother, but only for himself and for his own follies. Listening is incredibly important, and the disciples led by listening. The disciples didn't stop there. They didn't think that they had the high ground because they had all the authority. They didn't say, um, we don't have to pay attention to what's being said here. We don't have to deal with this because we're in positions of authority, and you just have to listen to what we say. Instead, they invited others in to positions of authority, and they invited others in to positions of leadership. Now, it says the qualifications that they were spirit-filled, and they were wise, and they were faithful, but they still invited others into positions of authority 
in leadership. Right? What does that mean for us? I'm, I'm going to say I don't, I'm not real sure. I don't have a perfectly mapped out plan as to what that means, but I think I grasp some of the implications of that. Right? It means if there, are being, if there are people being neglected in our fellowship, well, maybe we should listen and learn from them. And as I thought about that just for a little bit this week, if I'm honest, I immediately said, um, you know, uh, we're a church that's primarily led by men, so if there are women members of our church who are being neglected in ministry, then as part of the implication of what the early church did here means that there needs to be more women in positions of authority and leadership. Does it mean that we, as male leadership, need to listen more to women who are in positions of leadership and authority? That's an implication. If God answers our prayer to be a diverse body of believers that is representative of our community, then we'll need people in leadership from differing races and differing ethnicities and differing backgrounds and so forth. And I don't know how that happens. I don't have that mapped out. But it's certainly an implication of the text from Acts chapter 6. Ultimately, here's the gospel principle that the apostles were living by. Whenever Jesus died on the cross, he died to create a new people. We talked about this when we went through the book of First. Peter. Peter says he took people who were previously disconnected from one another and made them into a new people united by Christ. A group united by Christ and focused on the mission of the gospel. And because Jesus died on the cross, we don't have to fight for positions of prominence and power. Because Jesus' death gives us the only identity we need, that of a child of God, that of a member of God's family with brothers and sisters all around us. And that identity certainly brings with it responsibility, but that identity is from Jesus. That identity ultimately bonds us with other believers, whether they speak our language, whether they share our skin color or our culture, because the bonds of community and unity around Christ are meant to be way stronger than anything else, and the disciples got it. They got it. They said, hey, we've been neglectful. Let's deal with the situation. Let's deal with it in a way that honors God as a result of Jesus changing us and Jesus changing who we are. For the sake of time, I have to move on and deal with some other things in chapter 6 and 7. Um, but moving on, like I said, to the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7, I want us to see the implications of how belonging to Christ informs the way we understand our relationship with God and our relationship with with one another. Stephen is the person who ties chapter 6 and chapter 7 together. Stephen is identified in the first few verses of chapter 6 as a person of um, uh, a wise person, full of the Spirit. It goes on uh, in chapter 6, it says Stephen is full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Chapter 6 tells us that Stephen is doing great wonders and signs, and he's speaking with wisdom about Jesus, and there's no one. There's no one that can um, sort of hang with Stephen as he's preaching and saying all this stuff about Jesus. There's no one around who can challenge his word. And so a group of sort of religious leaders decide to level some charges at Stephen because they just they want him to shut up and get out of the way. And they essentially accuse him of speaking against Moses and against the law and against the temple 
in Acts chapter 6, verses 13 through 15, it says this, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that would be the temple, and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest sort of gives Stephen an opportunity to respond to these charges. And like I said, I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to go through it and read some passages. Again, let me encourage you to go and read chapter 7. It's a very long sermon, but it's a perfect example of a first century sermon that points straight to Jesus. It's a sermon that is a condensed version of the history of Israel. And so as Stephen starts speaking to these very religious leaders that are accusing him of speaking against Moses in the temple and the law and custom, the story begins with Abraham. And the story talks about God demonstrating mercy with Abraham and establishing a covenant with Abraham in verses 1 through 8. In verses 9 through 16, Stephen goes on to talk about Joseph and how the Israelites came to Egypt. And if you know the story, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. They meant him harm. God had other plans. God was, <coughs> excuse me, God was patient and merciful, kept on working for their deliverance despite their sin. God moved Joseph into a position of authority. And God, instead of judging the brothers, used their very sin to eventually rescue them when they ran out of food and they had to go begging to Egypt to their brother that they once hated. Stephen moves on to spend a long time talking about Moses. He goes on to talk about how God raised up Moses when Moses um, grew up in Egypt and ran away and spent some time in the desert and how God brought him back to be a deliverer for God's people. And uh, he gives several examples of how God's people rejected Moses and rejected God, worshiped false gods. Acts 7, 39 through 42. Let me read this. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. And yet, despite the sin, despite their idolatry, God leads them into the promised land and goes before them and fights for them. Stephen moves on to briefly talk about David and Solomon, how there's a temple built because of Solomon. But Stephen reminds them in verse 48 that God doesn't dwell in houses built by hand. That becomes important again in a second. And then verses 51 through 53, this is Stephen's final conclusion to what he's saying. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. 
you who received the law was delivered by angels and did not keep it. Those are pretty, those are pretty hard words. Stephen says, you received God's word from on high, and yet you didn't keep it. Stephen's defense was not intended to save his life. In fact, it led to him being stoned to death. He had been charged with speaking against Moses and the law and against God in the temple. And his defense is that history proves the opposite. That the very people who were accusing Stephen of speaking against God and Moses in the temple... They're the ones that had stiffened their neck against God and resisted the Holy Spirit. They're the ones who need to give an account, not Stephen. And they become enraged that Stephen would say this to him. And so it literally says they begin gnashing their teeth because they're so angry. And they take Stephen outside and they stone him to death. Right? Just as an aside for a minute, look at the difference between these religious leaders' responses to being accused and the difference of the apostles when they were accused of being neglectful. These religious leaders, they killed Stephen. The apostles said, you're right, what are we going to do about it? Let's put some people into positions of authority who are from the very folks that have been neglected. What a difference the gospel makes in the way we relate to people and the way we relate to God, especially when we're confronted with the ways in which we have acted unjustly, where we have sinned, where our sin has been pointed out. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus? Do you want me to sing the song? I feel like I have to sing this song because Ben sang a song last Sunday as well. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. That's all I'm doing. Story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Luke chapter 19 says that Zacchaeus was very wealthy. It also says that he had to climb a tree to see Jesus. And uh, so Jesus comes along. He sees Zacchaeus in the tree. He tells Zacchaeus to come down because Jesus and Zacchaeus are going to eat together that day. And so Zacchaeus and Jesus eat together. And as a response of meeting Jesus, Zacchaeus met Jesus. They had a meal together. We don't know all that was said and all that happened as they're together. But Zacchaeus' response is this. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What a difference meeting Jesus makes in the way we deal with those who have been neglected and treated unjustly when our sin is pointed out. Zacchaeus decided to give back. He decided to give back to those who had defrauded them. The apostles decided to act and to say, people have been neglected, that's on us, let's do something about it. People confronting Stephen, they killed him. They stoned him to death. Part of what Stephen points out as he's being a witness, part of what Stephen points out as he's preaching through the whole history of Israel, 
is that the root evil in many was that they derived their joy, their fulfillment, their sense of significance from what they could achieve with their own hands and what they had created with their own hands. Verse 41 reminds us that they rejoiced in the work of their hands. And then in verse 48, Stephen reminds them that God doesn't dwell in places built by men's hands. It's almost as if these folks that are accusing Stephen, these religious leaders had looked back at the entire history of everything that God had done from them for them, and they just sort of made up a new way of dealing with God. They just sort of made up what it meant to have a relationship with God and worship in the temple. They didn't understand their history. They didn't understand what God had done from them, and they just sort of made something up. They created their own version of what it meant to have a relationship with God, one that they had built with their own hands. And therefore, their worship had become a subtle form of self-worship, something that was very religious, something that used the right language, but was coming from uncircumcised hearts and stiff, unsubmissive, self-exalting necks. In Mark 14, 58, Jesus said that he would destroy the temple and build another in three days not made with hands. When Jesus said that, I think part of what he meant was that he was going to destroy this kind of religion. And Stephen got it. Stephen said, you have this whole history. You have this whole history of God acting on your behalf. And now Jesus is here, and you're missing the fulfillment of everything that God has done for you. You're interpreting this the way that you want to. You're missing the reality of what God has done. And Stephen is trying to point them to Jesus. Stephen, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is here. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the history of God acting on your behalf, constantly rescuing you, constantly saving you, despite your sin, despite your idolatry, despite turning away from God. God has worked on your behalf all along. Jesus is here, and you're missing it, guys. You want to kill me because I'm telling you about the very fulfillment of God's work on your behalf. What are you doing? Stephen got it. He's pointing them away from themselves into Jesus instead. And that's the whole point of Stephen's sermon. It's Jesus. It's not you. It's Jesus. It's not what you've built. It's Jesus. It's not what you've done. It's Jesus. It's not what you understand. It's Jesus. And they stoned him. What are the implications of properly understanding our relationship to God and to others. For starters, it's God who does all the work, not us. We bring nothing to the table. We build nothing. It's imperative that we properly understand our history and our story. We are sinners. God has acted on our behalf. We bring nothing good to the table, and yet God still makes us his very own. 
When we exalt our own goodness, our own works, what we've done with our own hands, we're simply being stiff-necked and unrepentant like the very people that Stephen was talking to. What grace and mercy there is to be found because of the work of Jesus. How wonderful that God would make us his own people. How wonderful that God would connect us to others by giving us an identity as children of God who have family members that don't look like us and come from different places than us. How wonderful that God would give us the identity of belonging to Christ and that being what unites us together rather than anything else. How amazing that despite our sin, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, showing faithfulness to thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. It's amazing that our God would not turn from pursuing us simply because we've sinned once or twice or 10 times or 70 times or 70 times, seven times. God is still pursuing us. God is still calling us to Jesus. God is still calling us to repent. And that's the very thing Stephen was doing to these people. Jesus is here for you guys. You can still repent. You can still follow Jesus. The call for us is to not be stiff-necked, but to repent and follow Jesus. One final implication of properly understanding our relationship to God is this. It is, it is to be reminded that death is no longer a thing to be feared. Look at what happens at the end of Acts chapter 7. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Because of Jesus, death has been defeated. We know the death will find us all. That's the normal state of being. Death will find us all. But the believer has no need to fear neither in life nor death because of the work of Christ. Ultimately, chapter 6 and chapter 7 are about Stephen and about others, about the apostles. We're introduced to Philip and Paul, who will show up a bit later. It's all about these people being witnesses for the gospel above anything else. And the call for us, whether in life or death, whatever challenges we face, whatever disunity we need to address, whatever neglectfulness we're responsible for, whatever sin we need to repent of, whatever suffering we face, the call for us is to continue to repent, to turn in faith, to be witnesses to the gospel advances so that doors for the gospel are open. That's what we've been praying for every week, right? Doors to the gospel would be opened in downtown Augusta. The gospel would go forth and lives would be changed. Whatever we face, whatever challenges, whatever suffering, the call for us is to continue to repent and turn in faith and to be witnesses. That's what we've been praying for, that's what we'll continue to pray for, and that's the call for us this morning. The call for us is to 
recognize the implications of what it means to be rightly related to God. It's to understand the implications of what it means when we've neglected others and caused disunity, the implications of what it means to know Christ and how we respond to others and how we respond to Christ. And as we respond, as the gospel changes us to respond correctly in those situations, to be witnesses even in the midst of our repentance and turning in faith. That's the call for us this morning, to repent, to turn in faith, and to continue to be witnesses for our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to enter into a time of response like we do every Sunday here at Redemption. It's a time for us to sort of reflect and respond to the very things that God has been working in our hearts and minds as we've prayed together and sang together and heard God's word proclaimed and all these other things. And so let me encourage you, uh, if you're here and God is uh, dealing with you and you need to pray, you need to spend some time reflecting, whatever it might be, let me encourage you to do that even now. Uh, The band's going to come back as well in just a second. Lead us in some more songs and give us the opportunity to worship by singing. We have an opportunity to worship through giving. There's a giving basket in the back where you can put your tithes and offerings. It's a continual act of worship by trusting God with what he's given us um, and, and, and through giving. And during this time as well, we have the opportunity to take communion. We take communion every Sunday here at Redemption, and here's the reason why. Scripture says that when we take communion, we're remembering what Christ has done for us, and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it. So as we take communion, it's a reminder of Jesus' work on our behalf, and it's a proclamation that the gospel is true, that Jesus did something for us, and that we believe it. So if you're here, whether you're a member of redemption or not, if God gives you the freedom to do so, I'd invite you to come down the middle aisle, go in either direction, tear off some bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and know that in doing that, you're remembering what Christ has done, and you're proclaiming that you believe it. If that's not something that you can do, I would encourage you to stay where you are. Um, But as an act of worship, that opportunity uh, exists for us. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll move on from there. Holy Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. And even though there's a lot there, and even though we had just a little bit of time to deal with it, God, thank you for... um, what we can learn about you, what you, we can learn about what you've done for us, how we're changed, and how all of this points to Jesus and to his work on our behalf and how Jesus changes us. And so, God, even now as we continue to worship and respond, I pray that Jesus would continue to be lifted high in this place, that because Jesus is lifted high, we are drawn to you because of Christ and because of Christ alone. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus.